Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Minnie. Minnie. How are you this morning? I'm pretty thankful, hey. I was listening to this podcast, so... It's, it's by a group called Fight the New Drug, which looks at the harmful effects of porn. Um, and they they have this podcast called Consider Before Consuming. I was listening to this thing yesterday. It's just this girl story. And I just finished listening it, to it being like, man, my life is so good. Like she was just a survivor of some serious, um, like pretty much human trafficking by her family. Um, and I was just sitting to it being like, man, I just have no idea. And I was just like, I just spent the whole drive here just contemplating it, you know, just different things and really just going, what are we here for as Christians? What am I here for as an individual? Just going down that whole rabbit hole of life and existence and philosophy. And But yeah, no, I on a serious note though, I was like, people go through really terrible things. And all, all families have dysfunction, but I'm like, man, thank you, God. Not that God puts other people in those positions, but I'm just, I just, I know I'm blessed, you know? Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah. it's nice to be able to be thankful for, you know, we, you know, so many different places that we could be, you mm. know? As you yeah. say, every family has dysfunction. Yours family has dysfunction. My family has dysfunction. Yeah. Every family has it. But when I look at so many families and so and the experiences, the extreme experiences that so many young people go through in so many different parts of the world, yeah, you know, we have nothing that even compares. That's right. Yeah. How are you feeling this morning, though? Yeah, blessed. Yeah, good. Always blessed. God is good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, they, they, that's what we want to hear. It is good to be here this morning, though. I feel like I started on a bit of a downer, but no, it is actually it's good <laughs> well, to it's be here. It's kind of a morning. heavy thought, and I'm just sort of sitting here, just sort of thinking of that thought, and it's like, ooh, yeah. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Absolutely. Sounds like a great prize right there. So, uh, yeah, let us know what your thoughts are on this one. And don't forget, of course, to take those numbers and save them in your phone. That's the way. Uh, because that way you are just simply ready to give us a call whenever you come up with or shoot us a text whenever you come up with the answer. Minnie, let's have some positively different news. Okay, so I did say it briefly before, but, yes, yeah, so there's a well-known mountain man down in Victoria's Alpine region. His name is Charlie Lovick. Lovick? Anyway, he's hoping to retrain and rehome up to 200 ex-racehorses um, on his property um, because apparently, you know, according to, um, yeah, what people say about what happens to ex-racehorses, they don't really have a great life. Once they're done racing, that's pretty sad. You know, you hear the stories, do they go off to become meat? Do they go off to become glued? You know, that's the stories that go around. Does it happen? Does it not? The point is a they lot of them- They don't use animal glue anymore. No, I know. But a lot of them still, it's like- that was their purpose. They were here to race. Now that they're but probably dog food. Mm. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. But I mean, what are you going to do with the body of a dead racehorse? Not heaps. Uh, you can bury it in the ground. and It becomes fertilizer. It becomes fertilizer. Mm, yeah. is, 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 one way or another, it's going to become fertilizer. Yes, but that's when they die. They don't all die. Yes. No, they all die. But yeah, eventually. They but are yeah, animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Racehorses are no, not but immortal. I mean, you know that. Minnie, what no, are you saying? Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like some, some of them get injured and so then they get put down or something, but not yes. all of them will finish their career with death. Like that's that's not No, no, some of yeah. them retire. Some of them, I yeah. guess, I don't know. What happens to racehorses? Can you, can you take a racehorse and just like ride it like a 
normal horse or do they always just want to run? I don't know. Well, I don't know. He reckons they need to be retrained. I don't know what that specifically means. Part of it, he says, is for them, yeah, to not have to be in the wear race mode and how to function in just a normal group of horses. Because I guess horses are still like relational creatures in the sense that they have their hierarchies yes. in the paddock, you know. Yes, um, yes. And so they just, are social creatures. That's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, you even see that between human and horse, you know, like they're incredibly loyal, so. beautiful animals. And that's part of his thing. He's like, you know, I don't want people to just go, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take it. And then they just leave it out in the back paddock. Um, and, you know, they like feed it and stuff. But he's like, you know, these horses, they need to develop that relationship again with humans. And it's not just about racing. Um, and so, yeah, he, he says it takes three or more months um, to do that for one horse. It requires patience and experience, but he totally sees the value in doing that. And I was like, that's a long time, three months, and he's got like 200 horses on his property. <laughs> that's a big amount of time. Now, is it just him? I don't know. He could have a team of people with him, but he just loves horses. Um, and he said there's also, they've been seeing that it has a positive impact in the local community with kids who are wanting to come out and learning to ride and spending time with the horses. So once he's retrained these horses, what does he pass them on to people yes. who want a horse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool. So he doesn't want them just to keep them, but he wants to have them not rehabilitate, but I guess get them back to a... Well, train them so that a kid could ride them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because that's pretty different to being a professional racehorse. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't <laughs> want to put my kid on the back of a uh, racehorse, you know, that no, just go tearing off go. across the paddock. Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah, in another news story about um, another animal, so a koala that was born with a foot missing has a new one after a dental prosthetist, I don't know how to pronounce that, but offered to help the little fella known as Triumph. So it was taken into care after being found near his dying mother on a property near Lismore. And, um, yeah, vets discovered that a missing foot uh, was a birth defect and it was causing him some pain, like it was a bit sensitive And the rescuer and vet nurse, Marley Christian, began dressing the stump with doll socks and booties, finding it relief sensitivity. She looked everywhere to find out if someone could make a fake um, limb. And all the people she talked to were like, we don't know how to do that for a koala. (laughs) (laughs) We've done it with other things. (laughs) This is a first. And, uh, yeah, so she looked at different places. And then just in passing to a dentist, yeah, in Lismore, she was just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this koala. And they're like, oh. You know, I take like impressions for mouths and stuff and every dent is different. I could give it a go. Uh, so we did. And yeah. And it he, works? Yeah, and it works. That's pretty cool. And so as soon as he got it on, he found that, um, yeah, Triumph the koala just, you know, began climbing and grooming and running around and they reckon his whole demeanour changed. So I don't know what it looks like for a koala's demeanour to change, but I guess when something's causing you pain. So is this a koala that's ever going to make it in the wild or? I don't know. He's going to need care for the rest but it would be kind of a nice excuse to have a pet koala. Oh, imagine. Although those things, when they're awake, they sound not great. You're like, is that a feral pig? Have you heard <laughs> Particularly if it's two koalas fighting, you're like, what is going on? <laughs> well, maybe he's just a peaceful little koala that just likes to be. sit in a tree in the backyard and That's true. be yeah. taken care of and yeah. be part of the family yep. and not scream and yell at everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I just think it'd be interesting seeing a koala walking around with a... Yeah. Prosthetic well, leg. Yeah. Oh, the epic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just think that's a cool story. In another story, um, in Denver, so if you guys were following the news at all last mile year. Mile high city. Yep, could be. I don't actually know where it is. I know it's in the US. <laughs> <laughs> Lived there for a while. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, there was just so much just stuff about defund the police and just crazy craziness. Um, 
And I don't think that's a good thing. No. And, you know, some people went, okay, we do still want the police, but can we make some changes that are more conducive to just, just general community building relationships back up after there's been this whole, um, yeah, just feeling of distrust and whatever. Anyway, so instead of responding with uh, police to some calls, um, police in Denver are sending healthcare teams to non-criminal calls to save more live, uh, lives. So basically it's a program in its beginnings where teams of social workers and paramedics respond um, yeah, just to some calls instead of um, the police because sometimes when they have when they found police go out there, it kind of heightens the situation because they're not actually equipped to deal with, I guess, that more mental health or different side yes, of things. Yes. And so then it can escalate to being at arrest or jail time. And over the last uh, six months, they've had over like 740 low-level incidents, uh, which these guys have responded to, and they've just found it's been able to defuse the situation, um, get them a bit more of the help that they need, and it's also allowing police to deal with more police matters. Catch the real criminals. Yeah, so they're finding it to be effective at the moment. And, I mean, I know in Australia here, often when you have a call, I mean, I guess depending on what it's for, but sometimes you'll have, you know, the fireys, the police and the ambulances go out, depending on what it's for. That's right. Um, You know, so they're... And I think this is an important issue to look at because uh, if you get somebody who's dealing with some mental health issues, when the, you know, just the mere presence of the police puts people on edge. I am somebody, I am somebody who is massively supportive of the police. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think they just, you know, they put their lives on the line every day. They, they, they go into danger. They run towards the danger while we are running away. That's their job. Mm. And so I have a huge amount of respect for them. But at the same time, you know, there's always that kind of funny little edge that you feel. Always. You know, even when you get pulled over <laughs> for the breath, though, and I kind of enjoy getting pulled over for the breath, though, because I never drink yeah, and it's yeah, never right. going to be a problem. There's never going to be an issue. And I'm always going to be able to have a friendly experience there. But there's still that little bit of edge that just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, and you see the, the cop car on the side of the road and it's look, like, ooh, what am I? Am I speeding? No, I'm not speeding. Yeah. Um, always. All that kind of, always. always. <laughs> always glance. And I think that in some of these mental health institutions, situations, that that little bit of an edge can escalate the situation just because the person is wearing a police uniform. That's right. Not because of anything they say. And I think that they just generally do an exceptional job. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. (laughs) Okay, Lyle, tell us some news stories. I don't have any news stories to tell. I am just upset. (laughs) Ah, uh, where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go? What are we talking about this morning? Let me see. What have we got here? Uh, okay, so this is the uh, this uh, new ABC drama about Gallipoli. Now, Ooh. bear with me on this one. I war genre is one of my historical war genre is one of my favourite genres because I love history mm. and uh, history really is the story of warfare in many ways. Yeah, um, you cannot do anything with history without covering you know the issue of warfare. And it does it. It does talk about talk to and you know deal with the extremes of the human experience, mm. uh, uh, which is what makes for fascinating stories. Uh, the new one that's coming out, a new ABC drama, is going to re- be required to have uh, a fifty percent female cast and Indigenous lead actors. So this is um, interesting, and just stay with me because this is the new guidelines that come into effect. I think it was yesterday. Um, and that's to meet the minimum diversity requirements uh, focus um, on underrepresented people. Now, okay, I get all that. However, for somebody who 
likes history and appreciates history, when I sit down to watch a history drama or a history documentary or whatever it might be, the thing that I want to see is an accurate depiction mm. of what actually took place. And when you see a whole bunch of things that come in, you're like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. What's the direction they're taking? Because I guess you could go with the female so like, you know, with the, how many nurses okay, were so, there, there, so, you know. So, so here's the thing. This uh, drama has been proposed and ABC has come back and said, well, these are the new requirements, so this right. is what you're going to have to do. Okay. And so that may involve then completely rewriting the script. Right. Because now you're going to have to focus on you focus your story on people at home. And, and by the way, I should say this. I would love to see a drama that focuses on Indigenous people at Gallipoli. Oh, yeah. You know, there was, what, uh, half a million Mm. Um, men who served, you know, Australian, British, New Zealanders who served uh, on Gallipoli, and out, out of those half a million, there was what seventy, mm. you know, Aboriginal men. That that would be a really interesting story. I, I'd I'd love to see that. I would watch that. Yeah, yeah, fully. Because there's a whole bunch of stories there that have never been told, particularly when this was a period when Aboriginal men were not allowed to serve. I mean, how bizarre is that? Yeah. You know, there's a whole skill set there, amazing skill set. It was like, no, we're not going to have that. Mm. You know, ridiculous. But anyway, um, what I do object to, though, is when you have guidelines that create diversity requirements because what that creates is discrimination, and I don't like discrimination. But uh, so this is the Diversity and Inclusion Commissioning Guidelines um, and they will apply to all genres so that all have to have one lead person. So anything that is produced for the ABC has to have one lead person, which is either Indigenous, disabled or LGBT+. Um, Half the production crew as well as half of the cast must be women, which just bear with me on this. Just bear with me. Stay with me on this. Mm. Um, because I'm a very strong promoter of equality of opportunity. Equality of outcome creates a race to the bottom. I'll talk about it in just a moment. So the um, and documentaries must explicitly and predominantly, so that's interesting language, explore issues of identity and underrepresented groups. So we can't have docos about normal people, any you know, average people, not normal, average people anymore. Um, and whenever producers are, sub, uh, are putting forward a project, they must sub, submit a diversity and inclusion plan that includes diversity both on screen and off screen with a very clear career progression uh, process for underrepresented um, individ- you know, um, parts of society. Mm. So, you know... <clears throat> um, Evan Mulholland, who is the Director uh, of Communications for the Institute of Public Affairs, had this to say. He said, on every major issue from the lockdowns to climate change to Australia Day, the ABC presents only one point of view. The ABC is too focused on what divides us rather than what unites us. It is obsessed with identity politics. And this is one of my major issues right here, is that when we go down this path, we are focusing on all of the different things that are dividing us. So rather than saying that there is a human race... Yeah, right. We're saying there's all of these different races and so we need to focus on the fact that we have all of these different races rather than just being people Mm. and being human beings. 
And of course, this creates a massive amount of discrimination. So, you know, for instance, discriminates people uh, based on gender. There's going to be a whole slew of, you know, young guys who'll be like, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll love to be an actor in the, uh, you know, the Gallipoli um, drama. And they're automatically wiped out because, well, we don't have the budget for that because half of them have to be women. And that has then to change the whole script because then you've got to, you know, include a whole bunch of home stories, which, you know, interesting stories for sure. I want to hear those stories as well. I want to hear what the women were doing at home. But, you know, is this about, is this a drama about the women at home or is it a drama about Gallipoli or, or what's going on here? Mm. Um, it is discriminates against a whole bunch of people based on their skill level. So rather than merit-based hiring, it becomes diversity-based hiring, which means that you have a lower level of skill, you have a lower level of production. It makes Australian, you know, television production look bad. Um, and it discriminates against people who have put in all of the effort to achieve what they've achieved and to acquire the skills that they have because then you get a whole people whole group of people who are being included not because they have skills but because of, you know, the colour of their skin. That's that's discrimination. Um, it lessens the value of achievement. So somebody who has, you know, worked hard and particularly if they come from a, you know, a smaller section of society, we'd love to celebrate people who come from a smaller section of society and their achievements, well, that doesn't really mean anything anymore because you now stop and ask the question, did they actually really achieve anything or was this just diversity legislation that placed that person there? Mm. Yeah, right. Um, it you know, lowers the quality of work expectations. And so what it creates then is a vicious cycle because it lowers the level of the production then you can lower it and lower it and lower it and lower it until you know it becomes a uh, basically a race to the bottom. Um, it suggests that women require this kind of mm. uh, policy That's because they thought. don't actually have the skills to be able to get the roles. Um, you know, we could go on and on about this, but I think one of the things that we need to look at is the biblical model and compare these kind of concepts to the biblical model. I could give you a whole long list of objections. But when we come to the Bible, we find that God creates equality of individuals. So all individuals, every human being is of equal value. So equality of value, but diversity of roles. And equality of opportunity with, you know, diversity of, you know, different roles that God gives to us. And there's a lot of different places where that's illustrated in the Bible. Of course, God is above culture. And when culture is wrong, God speaks against it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, David, are you, are you, are you with us now? Good morning. There good morning, Lyle. Good morning to your listeners. Ah, David, good to have you on the show this morning. So we understand that, um, you know, we've been going through this whole series on dealing with conflict, and today we're going to talk about the role of confession. Where does, where does, where, I mean, yeah, this one's, a, this one's a very challenging one. I, I know from my own experience it can be really, really hard to own up to the fact that I've done anything wrong because I'm a typical man. We don't do things that are wrong. And so to actually to actually come out and say that is a really, really hard thing. Tell us about it, David. 
just with tongue-in-cheek, I saw that uh, women have many mistakes, but men only two. Whatever they say and whatever they do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, now we started off this program by talking about um, peace fighting, and you know we we refer to the uh, withdrawal that we have. In other words, escapism in in dealing with conflict that we say, "No, no, didn't really matter, didn't really hurt, but it just bruised inside of us," and that. The final, the ultimate is where people commit suicide as a form of peace fighting. On the other hand, there is uh, attacking uh, strategies that we use where we, uh, litigation, uh, you know, we accuse, we, we attack people verbally, physically, eventually assault. And the, the ultimate there is murder. And we're looking for a middle way between those two and then going through some steps in uh, how to resolve conflict in relationship. And really the issue of confession is a major issue. Let me share a story. I uh, once was called out to a home and uh, luckily it's not Australia. It is far beyond Australian borders. I won't say which country, which town um, and which people, but the wife heard a terrible noise coming out of the toilet. And uh, she went to the toilet. She knew that her husband had gone in. She tried to open up. The door was locked. And when he eventually opened up the door, she found him stepping through the the toilet cover. But now his foot was stuck. He couldn't get out. He needed extra help. She wanted to know what was he doing on the the toilet uh, cover. And uh, because he didn't give a clear answer, she looked out the window and discovered that he was peeping out at the neighbor's wife. Uh, He was immediately uh, sorry for what he had done and confessed and said, you know, uh, I'm I'm so sorry. You know, I I will never do it. I, I was just. You know, if you had been a more loving wife, I would not have been needed to do this. Um, is that what confession looks like? Not at all. When, when I use the words if or but in a confession, if means really that um, I didn't really do it wrong. Uh, it, it was actually your fault. But if I use the word but, I'm actually passing the blame onto someone else. Would that resolve conflict? No, not and at does all. That not sound, at all. And does that sound like a confession? Well, it's it's kind of like a confession, you know, when you see, sort of hear that confession start off, but then it's got that little barb in it, you know, and you hear somebody starting to make a confession, it's like, this is going to be nice, we're going to be able to uh, resolve this whole situation here, but as soon as the if or the but comes in, then there is a hidden barb within the confession that just stabs into your flesh. Which immediately cancels out the genuineness of that confession and it is a form of peace faking but it doesn't resolve the problem. Mm. So how do we go about confessing and do we need to confess? Should we always confess? Proverbs 28.13 where it says whoever conceals their sins does not prosper but the one who confesses an erroneous uh, and 
and when, sorry, renounces them, uh, finds mercy. In other words, it is for our own sake that we actually need to confess. Uh, not just for our relationships, but for our own internal mental health and physical health. When I'm carrying guilt and I'm constantly hiding, trying to circumvent that confrontation, I'm actually destroying myself. Mm. So, so it is vital to understand, I want to put it in inverted commas, uh, the signs of true confession. Um, and it starts out by having to address every person involved. We, um, we say often see confessions made by politicians and we see the reaction in the newspaper that uh, it didn't go far enough or um, it was purely a, a peace-faking process that they were involved with because they, one of the elements is that they, they did not uh, address everyone that, that were hurt. Um, it's very interesting that um, the Bible talks about this and, and how people like, you know, David uh, confesses, but he confesses to everyone that has been impacted by that injury and by that hurt. Which on occasion the, involves the whole nation. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, the, the second one uh, we've already mentioned, that is uh, namely avoiding ifs and buts, but the third point is so important, and that is to admit specific things that we are asking forgiveness for. In other words, just to generalize, just to be very vague, in our confession, will not uh, really do. I, I see in Psalm 51, King David um, being very specific about the confession you know, of his sins before God. Uh, and he, he, he calls it by name. And that is what is so missing today in our modern way of confessing. Because when we confess uh, to our spouses or to our colleagues or to our community, we say, well, I'm so sorry for the things that I've done that has hurt you. And I think sometimes we do the same with God. It's like, uh, please, God, forgive me for all the sins I've ever committed. Thank you. Amen. Yeah. And it's so interesting that in Mark, uh, I think it's chapter 10, where the uh, the blind Bartimaeus you know, comes to Jesus, that Jesus actually says to him, what is it that you want me to do for you? It's not that Jesus didn't know that he was blind, but he actually wants Bartimaeus, you know, to uh, to be specific about the things that he needs healing from. And as we, in our confession, are very specific in our uh, confession or our request for forgiveness from someone else, that actually shows that we are genuine and that we're willing to name the wrong that we have done. And it releases us from the damage that is done in our inner soul as well. Mm. Uh, another point is to acknowledge the hurt. In other words, expressing an understanding and genuine sorrow for the hurt that my action has caused that person. Now, I think I've mentioned previously that uh, sometimes in an argument or in a major conflict, I might be guilty of 5% of the, the whole battle. Never mention that percentage though. But it is vital to remember that I'm 100% guilty of that 
And if I've got the courage to, to mention the part that I'm guilty of and ask for forgiveness, total forgiveness, and I'm willing to acknowledge that, that I've done that wrong, the golden rule of confession comes to the fore, and that is that as the one person confesses, that um, it so often solicits the other person to step forward and say, but you know what, I recognize that I was at fault as well. Please forgive me as well. And in so doing, it makes it so much easier for forgiveness to take place and, and, and mending of a relationship between two people. It, it reminds me in many ways when we talk about this, about the first two kings of Israel, where you have the first king, King Saul, who does some wrong things when he goes up against the Amalekites, and you know he's confronted by the prophet. You've done the wrong thing, and he's like, "Yeah, well, the people made me do it, and you know, I saved some animals and some, you know, for sacrifices and so forth." And he makes all these excuses until the prophet eventually turns around and says, "Look, because you've sinned against God, you're going to lose the kingdom." He's like, "Oh, I've sinned. I've sinned. I've." Con- you know, transgressed against God. You know, you compare that with King David who commits murder and adultery and rape and, you know, all kinds of terrible things, and the prophet comes to him and when the prophet says, you've sinned, he says, I've sinned against God, I've given I've given reason for the enemies of God to blaspheme, and, you know, God is able to forgive his sins. And so, you know, you've got one, one guy who, you know, his sin appears to be much less than what, you know, Saul appears to be much less than what David did, but he lost the kingdom over it because of a different kind of confession coming from a different kind of heart. Saul basically was um, peace-faking. He was not genuine about things. And so often our confessions come because we are caught out, not because we recognize that we've really injured, uh, you know, God or another person. Mm. In other words, the one comes from a more intellectual uh, and the other one from a deep-seated heart uh, surrender and recognition that, hey, I have damaged and I've caused hurt in, in someone else. And therefore, all it leads to our first point, and that is to accept the consequences. True confession is uh, when, when I'm truly sorry about what I've done, I am willing to accept the consequences for the behaviors that 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 has caused injury to another person. We so often want to make confession, but we don't want to accept the the consequences. And here I'm going to, you know, some challenging things that I've worked with over the years where you're called out to events where a child, an innocent child, has been abused by a relative. And the relative wants to make amends, but they do not want the consequences to take place. There is severe consequences that that is required when the innocence of a child is taken away. Yes, child. And, um, and if I really am sorry for what I've done, for the injury that I've caused, I will actually, in my confession, say I am willing to accept the punishment, the consequences of, 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 of my behavior. And when that happens, it is so much easier for the, um, the, the innocent party or the victim to also show mercy back to that person. But without that, very difficult for mercy and therefore mending of a broken relationship to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And another point, and I realised as we every every uh, Wednesday morning fighting for for time. The other one is that true confession will lead to an alter, in other words, a change of behaviour. Um, in other words, I will change. I will change the way that I normally do things. Um, an apology is in reality a promise. Uh, a promise that I will never do these actions again towards you. I will change the way that I approach you and the way that I will deal under difficult circumstances with an individual. Yeah, and, and, and this will. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you go. No, go ahead. This will really help to towards not just uh, you know. Last week we spoke about the transactional and the heart. Um, connection in in rebuilding a relationship that would really help towards that the mending of that relationship David we are we are out of time but thank you so much for joining us this morning but just to recap here that uh, ifs and buts we you know those do away with uh, confession um, that we confess to everyone who is involved we admit specifics acknowledge the hurt accept the consequences and uh, promise never to do it again, to, to make that confession actually a reality. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.